Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you excellent and interesting content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise more effectively, to leading and managing your own team, to thinking about creative or humanistic ways to do your work, and finally, to build up your skills in scholarly practice. We welcome you to sit back, listen, and enjoy the latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Mark Yeshke talk about developments in burn management and hospital administrative leadership. He discusses topics such as what brought him to Hamilton and McMaster, 3D skin printing to treat burn wounds, and how he builds his teams as a leader. We hope you enjoy. Hello to our Spark podcast listeners. I'm really looking forward to talking with our guest today, Dr. Mark Jeske. Before I give him a chance to speak, which believe me, I want to leave the majority of our time for, let me provide everyone with a quick introduction of Mark. Dr. Jeske is a world-renowned expert and research leader in the area of advancing innovative medical care in Burns. Dr. Jeske received his MD in Germany, moved to the United States and obtained a Master of Medical Science degree at the University of Texas, then returned to Germany to complete his PhD in experimental surgery at the University of Regensburg in Bavaria. While at Texas, he was a researcher and surgeon at the University of Texas Medical Branch and Shriners Hospital for Children. He then moved to Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto and under his direction since 2010, the Ross Tilly Burn Center, or RTBC, at Sunnybrook became a leading surgical and burn care institution in North America. In the summer of 2022, Dr. Jeschke moved to McMaster and Hamilton Health Sciences, where he is now the Vice President of Research and the Medical Director of the Burn Program at Hamilton Health Sciences and a Professor of Surgery in the Faculty of Health Sciences at McMaster. So welcome, Mark. I'm happy you're here, and I look forward to our conversation. So let's start with your move to McMaster and Hamilton Health Sciences. What led to your decision to come here? So first of all, thank you for having me, and uh, and thank you for your kind words. Uh, I'm looking forward to this as well. I, I trust me, it's, uh, it's very exciting for me to have moved on here. And what brought me here is actually the fact that um, I was exposed to McMaster during my time and uh, even as being a leader in, in the burn program up in Toronto. And what always impressed me was the community at McMaster and the collaboration, the spirit of collaboration, the community of helping each other, working with each other. And uh, that to this day, actually, I do find it's extremely uh, prevalent. It's extremely wonderful to to have this aspect here in this community so it, and it was it was honestly it was also a very it was a very uh direct move for me saying okay i do like ontario i do like living close in this community where we are currently are uh my kids are very happy my family is very happy in in ontario and and so forth so it came really down to a decision be, uh, i had the choices between various positions but uh, the majority of them obviously required to move back to the US, um, but it really was not only myself who re- who preferred this move to come down to McMaster or come to McMaster. Uh, my family was also extremely in support. They loved the idea. And at the end, uh, McMaster and HHS was the choice of the job, the position I took. 
Thank you. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to when this podcast episode gets released, because hopefully by that point, you will have found a home here at McMaster as well, and you won't be continuing to commute. <laughs> that would be actually very, very lovely. Yes. Um, no, it's, uh, there's ways also, I, I, you know, something that I realized too, and if we have time to just talk about it for a second, is actually the beauty of Hamilton and its surroundings. Um, when you're coming down on the QEW and drive over the bridge, the sky bridge, and you see this, you don't realize what wonderful and beautiful pockets there are because you don't see them, right? And you need to be, and you don't pay attention to them. You think, oh my God, what's what, what am I driving by? But there's so much nature, so much beauty hidden in pockets. Um, I'm, I've been stunned about, about the, about that aspect and I didn't expect it. So I'm looking very much forward to move down here to actually be really close to all these, these pockets in these areas. So it's going to be an exciting time, not only to commute, but to experience here the community we have here. Excellent. And hopefully you'll be able to enjoy not only the waterfront, but also the hiking trails and the paths that are connected to the Bruce trail here, right downtown. Yeah, yeah for sure. So I had a chance to read a little bit about your burn program, and so much of it is fascinating, but simultaneously sounds like science fiction. Wow. And it's really just so progressive and advanced. And I am curious to hear more about your pr program of research in burns. What are some of the projects that you're working on or questions you're currently exploring with your team? I know that's a big question. So if you can break that down for us, that'd be great. Um, so the the research, the the research, the burn research program, um, we always believed, and I'm very fortunate actually. So the almost my entire team moved from Toronto, from Sunnybrook down to HHS and and McMaster. Um, we did lose some member. One went to medical school, and uh, one actually took a job in in Vancouver. But out of 20 people, I would say 16 moved down here, which is very nice. It's just That's really helpful incredible. that the program started, right? It doesn't take years and years and years. It really, yes. uh, if you think about it, I came about nine, 10 months ago and we started now already to kick up and ramp up. So it was a, a, a very much a significant short of time, but bringing everybody. So I'm very happy that the team came. And what we have been studying over the last decades um, are actually relevant questions to patients that undergo or did suffer from a burn injury. And I'm not sure how familiar our audience is with burn injury. So I would, I always say, and I, I say this when I speak, a burn patient, a significant burn patient is the sickest patient in the hospital. A burn patient with a burn, for example, what is a significant burn is like over 30%, 20, 30% of your body for an adult is uh, trying to really die on you almost every day. The mm -hmm. complications of infections, of sepsis, of numerous other organ failures are just extremely present. And a burn patient's survival is not only dependent on the support metabolically, nutrition, critical care, uh, but it's also wound healing. So we're facing a challenge of having a very, very complex patient. And the research we picked up, and I trained my my research was that the basis of it was that in the Shriners Hospital Children, UTMB, as you mentioned. And there we really realized, and I think Dr. Hernan was my mentor, we realized that it is just not as, as, as easy as people think, that you just fix one aspect of a cascade and you're going to be fine, not existing. So it really is a very complex. So what we, what we, 
tried to work on over the last years is very translational. So we, our basic science is translated to the patient and we take also clinical questions and take it to the bench. So it is a constant back and forth between mm. bench research and clinical research. And the major questions now that are the theme that is deriving a little bit from our, our research. Again, we were, in, we were involved in a lot of things, as I just described, but the themes are, I think what we're known for is, again, metabolic research. Why are burn patients, they have a response it's called hypermetabolic response, and their energy demands is surpassing the energy demands if you want a marathon constantly for weeks and weeks and weeks. So that you, their nutrition there and, uh, again, the requirements for them are so high, that's why we call it hypermetabolic response. And if you're a metabolic researcher, that is actually, you realize that your muscle protein breaks down, your organ protein breaks down, you become this massively catabolic patient. And it's very poorly understand what the mechanisms are that drives this. And so we've been studying the mechanisms and to understand it more, we, uh, our, one of our recent discoveries was the, what also studied at Mac and at Motor is the aspect of the adipose tissue. And we did find that Burn causes a significant response in the adipose, the browning and undergoing lipolysis and so forth, causing all various detrimental aspects. So, and we are trying to unravel, is it a consequence or is it a driver of this metabolic response? And we, again, this is built on the aspect that we really, over years, worked on cell organelles and mitochondria and ER and looked at really at the different steps uh, of what's happening. So that is one big mm. theme of research that we're doing is metabolically driven. The other theme that is driven is, unfortunately, at our population, more and more older patients get burned. And this is actually very fascinating because I haven't found out why that is, but we have a really high incidence of patients that are over the age of 60, 65 and get burned. Hmm. Problem with that is uh, when you're over that age, you don't have to have a big burn that you have a very poor outcome. You can... Yeah, I had a patient who died with a 1% burn, which is, mm. it is really an outpatient for an adult. That patient died of a 1% burn. So we entered the field, the, the field of aging and we're probably globally the first ones really try to understand why that is. And the trials go back to like almost 20, yeah, almost 12, 13 years that we try to unravel what is the changes, what's occurring in older burn patients. And not only from a metabolic aspect, but even from a systematic aspect, inflammatory aspect, from immune aspect and wound healing aspect. And we made some really important discoveries and it's very fascinating because everybody believes on the inflammaging that uh, you have an increased inflammatory response when you're older. Mm. And what we actually see in burn patients is that they cannot respond to the stress, the stress. So they actually do not have any inflammatory response almost whatsoever. The oh. immune system is down, the metabolic, this hypermetabolism, what we expected to be up is actually down. So they have various deficiencies. And we believe that this is a really a key on why burn patients that are older don't survive. So we're digging deeper why that is that these patients succumb from the injury. And then lastly, the overarching theme of a burn patient, and even for also patients with trauma to gloving injuries and wounds is if you don't heal your wounds, you're not going to survive. And we entered, while I was in Texas, the beginning of 2000, over 20 years ago, we entered the area, the arena of uh, stem cell skin regeneration and wound healing. And that work really persisted now for a long, long time. And what we now worked on, and again, we worked on stem cells and we used adult stem cells, umbilical cord, this amniotic membrane, because they're safe, they can be used in other patients, uh, to rebuild and recreate skin. 
and uh, by coincidence, about six, seven, eight years ago, I, I'm not entirely sure, but we had a collaboration with the U of T and Department of Bioengineering, Dr. Günther, and he had some technology where he can print three-dimensional structures. So we got introduced and I actually said to him, well, instead of, he asked me, what can I print something for you? I said, yeah, you can print print for us, right? <laughs> so it was the start of a wonderful collaboration. Because what we did since is we have numerous iterations of a skin printer. And we, in fact, have a printing handheld device that can print your skin. And our goal always was to, it's a very fascinating story that I summarized in a couple of minutes. Our goal was always to basically scan your skin when you burn to make sure we have your nice, beautiful picture of your skin, how your skin architectures and cells are. Scan it into a computer. The computer tells your printer via, you know, it just says, this is what it has to look like. And then your printer prints exactly mimicking your own skin. So that that's the vision. I mean, we had various successes and failures. And, but we actually, I would say we're not too far from a preclinical trial, from a clinical trial, because we did a preclinical prime pigs and we had great successes and we actually got uh, scarless healing. So we have really healed wounds that healed with no major scars. We actually even had skin appendages, meaning hair and so forth. So we had some fascinating discoveries and so that came a long time over the last years where we're now saying okay we're doing some work right now that we understand the stem cell a little bit better in patients so we got a health canada approved for this trial which is coming here and we uh well it's broadcast in the summer so i can say the embargo is lifted we just got a significant grant from the stem cell network uh awarded last week and to studying stem cells in terms of their behavior in humans and once we know this then we can actually say we're going to print skin on patients so that's a cool story as well in itself, but yes. I think these are the three areas where I would say that the lab is focusing on and the lab is working on in, in this arena. But again, everything is translational and everything is there to always go back to a, a patient and help the patients. Wow. Uh, let me just summarize what I've heard so far. So you have three primary areas of research. One is around the hypercatabolic state uh, experienced by a burn patient. You have a second line of, or an area of research around adults and their depressed immune response when they experience burns. And you're trying to understand that further. Is that correct? The older adults, yes, correct. Older adults, yes. And then lastly, this was the one that I was referring to that sounded much more sci-fi, is yeah. that you are ha and have been in de uh, developing this three, uh, 3D skin printing technology right. and your focus is on the handheld 3d printing yeah. so it's not just the, the whole 3d printing which is already fascinating in and of, of itself but then also then to create some way to have a handheld device that would then print skin at the patient um, direct right. patient care level yeah, because again, you take the, and we discovered this four years ago, that actually when you have a full thickness deep burn, which by definition, all the cells are destroyed, we actually found by accident that uh, stem cells survive, which kind of makes sense that they need to survive because you basically depend on them surviving because they need to heal you, right? So we found that uh, despite full thickness burn, your stem cells survive. So we are able to isolate and extract these cells and then grow them into whatever, differentiate whatever they want to. So we have autologous stem cells. So, and you can imagine if you have a big burn, you have a lot of tissue, you get a lot of cells to start with, and then we can work and differentiate the cells into what we need and feed them in the printer and go back after a short period of time and go back and print them. So to give you an idea, if you're an 80% burn, 
you will be in the hospital for about a day or two per percent burn. So I would say 80% two days is normal. That's about 160 days. So we talk about almost six, seven months, right? Five, six, seven months, somewhere in there. So if with our technology, if you can really take all the burn, you isolate the cells, you incubate them, multiply them, it's about a week and you print them on, you would be, you could be out of the hospital in about 10 to 20 days. And obviously with almost no scarring because the goal is to replace your skin uh, with your own skin so that you don't have scar, you don't have the pain, you don't have donor side. So again, that's uh, the impact of what, what could be achieved with this device and this technology. It's that's kind of cool. It is, it's more than kind of, it's super cool. And I even imagine when you first came in contact with Dr. I think he said, Dr. Gunter. Dr. Gunter, yeah. He probably wasn't uh, printing any biological or organic material. I'm imagining that he was looking at plastics and polymers and. Uh, he was, yeah, he, I don't think he had skin in mind, 100% not. But, but it's actually, you know, that's the beauty of having a multidisciplinary team where you have, again, you have engineers, you have subologists, you have a surgeon, you have whatever. So, again, that's the beauty of having really different people working together that have different expertise and specialties because then you come together and create a vision and you work together and make it work. So, I think that's the, again, I believe in the this diversity, this creativity. And I, we try to have this in our lab too, that we really uh, add team members that have a diverse and great creative outlook, because I believe that really helps to define your research in a much, and imprint you, makes much more impact, it more, it's much more impactful than uh, just align everybody in the same expertise. Yeah. And you're highlighting also that when you move to Hamilton and to McMaster and Hamilton Health Sciences, that the majority of your team members also came with you which I think also speaks to their desire to be uh, to continue under your leadership in this new environment, such that they would even make the move here to Hamilton Health Sciences. And that's quite a significant accomplishment. I, I, I'm seen as from the leadership perspective. And so I would love to talk with you a little bit more yeah. about your leadership uh, experience and some of your uh, activities within the leadership realm. Because I, I was curious, when I first read your bio, you are the v vice president of research at Hamilton Health Sciences, also the director of the Burn program. How did you become interested in administrative leadership in addition to your very rich and developing and vibrant personal <laughs> research lab? Um, that's a good question. It, uh, it actually, I, I always joke around because uh, you asked me why I came. So the position opened up. Um, so my term as the director was done. It's, uh, you have in, in Toronto the same as like two, five years times two, so 10 years. I stayed on a little bit longer because of the pandemic, but I was almost, I was done being director in 2022. So I was looking for, I knew I would be finishing my terms. And I wasn't ready to just say I do nothing anymore. And I personally, being a leader of a of a team that was fantastic at at Rossley Burn Center, um, I experienced the the fun and all the, the the creativity you can have as an administrative leader. You have vision usually to try to rally your troops. You use sets uh, again. I believe in looking at opportunities, you set your vision, you put the building blocks in place, and this is where your strategic alignment occurs. And I did really enjoy doing that. Um, I had, I, I enjoyed taking a burn center, 
that and grew it over time into a world-class enterprise. And so to me, the next logical step was something that was a little bit more bigger on, on a different scale, right? Because when you build a brand center, it's great, I've done this. So what would come afterwards would be either a departmental chair job or you look at the vice president position where you have more administrative responsibilities. And this, this position became available. And then at the same time, they needed, uh, the requirement was a new burn lead. So it is almost like this job was made for me. That was mm. like, okay, you are a VP of research, which in itself is a full-time job, but then also yes. burn, which is kind of a full-time job. And yes. then you have a burn lab, which is a full-time job. So <laughs> that's right. Crazy. But the beauty of being an academic or being a leader in ad administratively, academically, in an academic center, or even in any center, university or hospital, whatever, is really if you enjoy having a vision and uh, have the tendency of creating, of, of looking forward and trying to look for opportunities to improve the status. And some, not always there is an improvement. That's going to be a tough leadership job because if somebody is perfect and lets some, the, the institution to some greatness, it's very hard then to follow that act. But usually there's always something that you can improve on. There's always something where you can go the next step. And that is the fascination of having some administrative work and responsibility that you can actually look and have a strong vision and strategic alignment. And to, to this day, I do enjoy having this. It's, uh, I, I think that you really nicely described it as the work of three full-time jobs that you have taken on yourself as one person. And I also imagine that in your three different leadership roles, leading your lab, leading the burn program, as well as being the VP of research, you're, you're having different goals and you have to have three completely different visions and they all might not align with your own personal desires for your own growth or your own achievement. And so how do you then align three very different visions or three very different uh, stakeholder groups within yeah. one person? Uh, you're right. Um, but I mean, I'd like to point out it is not one person that can do other jobs. So there is, I think you need to really rely on teams. So there is, you know, you have a burn team um, and you have to have support from the burn side. So you have a manager, ops director, VP, and you have to have people aligned on, on that side as well. It's just not, it's not about me and it's not me, but again, it's the teams there. And then as VP, you have to have a team that you're trying to build and support each other. So I don't think you can function as an individual saying I do it all by myself. You need to build those teams you can trust and you can really align the vision and, and the strategy. And obviously, yes, you have very different strategic uh, priorities. And, and I think you just need to realize when you are in these positions, it's very hard. You can't separate. You can have a meeting now or you, or you cannot have a VP meeting day and the next day you have a brand director meeting day and then you have, it doesn't work like this. So you basically just need to have, I think your flexibility and put different hats on and then just recall yourself. Okay, am I right now in this role? Am I in this role or what is needed? So that you are acting and thinking and working and deciding along the strategic or the, the outline that is required of that job. But but I think really the, the secret of, of any good leader who has numerous responsibilities, even if you have only one as an executive VP or as a VP, I do believe is, is the team approach and um, that you need to have a team around you that you trust and that works and that functions and 
if you disagree or you argue and you fight, you're not going to be successful. It, it's not going to flow. It's not going to work. So you have to have the support structure that helps you to navigate through this. And do you feel that building up that team for you in the decades that you've been leading your programs, is it more of an intuitive process where you just get a sense of the right people that fit in with your, in your team? Or do you have a more structured and deliberate approach to building your teams? That's a good question. Um, so for example, the lab, uh, we implemented something that I think that was really crucial. I realized when I hired by myself, I wasn't, it wasn't as good as when you hire as a team. You know, the diversity aspect was probably not as a priority as, as it should have been. So when we changed this to say that we have the lab hire the new members, I really feel that was a big plus so that the, the, the team hired. And all of a sudden, I have to tell you that at one point we had like 24, 24, five members of which 22 were females. And we had people of color, we had diversity, we had LBGTQ2+, whatever, we had members of those. So we had an extremely diverse lab. And, you know, but then again, the lab hires and it's, so it evens out a little bit. So right now we are more a little bit balanced, but we still, I think our female percentage is still higher as the male percentage. And we have all ethnicities. And, and again, that's something that I think is very important that you trust your team also to have an input on who you recruit. But that's the lab. In terms of the VP aspect or, I mean, the burn aspect, you are also there. You talk to the nurse, nursing side or the allied health side and say, do, what do we need in terms of a surgeon or as a fellow? Does, uh, does this uh, per interviewee, is, is he or is she or he, they compliant? Are they uh, congruent? Are they be, can they match the system? And again, so there as well, there is a certain structure to it, but there's a lot of what the team decides and the intu intuition, what you just described, how to move forward. And yeah, sometimes you just, uh, and again, we don't, I don't think we hire a specific phenotype. We just want to make sure that you have creativity, diversity, and different inputs, because otherwise, otherwise, if you're all aligned, it's, there's no, no diversion and which is bad. You need to have different opinions and sit down and come saying, okay, I trust your opinion and this is how you move forward. And make good decisions. And sometimes you just go with gut instinct. Mm, yeah. And I appreciate your uh, point about having divergent viewpoints as well and how that enriches yeah. any team that you either lead or are a part of. I wonder, and thinking back to your many years of leadership experience, as well as in building up and really putting onto the world stage your, your burn program of research, are there some key moments in your professional life that you remember and go back to as a key turning point in giving you a lesson that you feel, okay, this is something that I'm going to take with me and that I revisit when these situations come up now, or an area that you felt at the time was not a positive outcome or the outcome you desired. And yet now you look back on it and that actually led to these successes that you currently experience. Any key turning points? You, I, I think you have key turning points. I think you do. And it would be not human if you don't. I think the, the key element is you have to learn constantly and you learn as a leader and you learn. You, we take all the leadership classes, right? I mean, obviously we do, we do all of that, but and you go in and you learn about certain terminology and certain thoughts and classifications, how to prepare for meetings and how to blah, 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 blah. Anyway, whatever. That, that's, it's a good tool that you get. But 
at the end of the day, I think you develop as a leader and you develop a leadership style that's yours. And you, I think you find you 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 find out over time based on feedback and how people perceive you, what is good about your leadership style and what is not so good. And I I'm clearly wasn't born a leader. I I matured, I listened, I I changed. And I'm sure if you talk to the team back where I was leading in Texas, and then even going now to the Rostilly Brown team and to now. The, the the changes over time, I, I would say, I would think they would tell you, oh, no, he's significantly changed. And so I think you have many key moments and it's important to recognize even small moments and just simply say, what is a good leader? How is my team responding to me? And what's the feedback and be open to that and, and to adapt to that and make sure that you listen. And I, I do find that is, that's key. And even to this day, when the moments occur that are similar, you know exactly how to respond. You you get an idea, you get an intuition, you know that's what I did before. That was very well received. So uh, is it applicable? Yes. So then let's do the same. So I think you, you learn a lot over time and I think you need to be open-minded and you're as a leader mature over time significantly, but you need to be open to this. You can't just go in saying, that's me and that's my leadership style, accept it or leave it. I, I don't think that's going to be a good leadership style. I, I imagine as I'm hearing you talk, this graph in my mind where we have this uh, uh, highest level of leadership skill and ability up here. And I see your trajectory as reaching that asymptote of this highest level. And, you know, at the same time, I, I think, well, if you're so close to reaching that high level of leadership capability, then is there still a desire to want to continue to grow and develop? And so I, I'm curious, from your perspective, having had so many years of experience and success and achievement, both within your program of research, as well as within your leadership endeavors, how do you view your own personal and professional development at this stage in your life? Well, <laughs> well, I'm still learning. I, I see myself as I'm still in there. And uh I think it's important to have a professional life and uh, to be the person in your professional life for sure. Um, and I do have a have a big family, and your family certainly keeps you to a certain degree grounded and looking at because they don't they don't you can't just take leadership style home and saying oh yeah this is where we're going as a strategy. I don't think family's dynamics is you can't compare. So it is very important to have uh, support from your family and have that family structure and. Again, I, I hope I still learn and I hope I, I will be perceived as somebody who's listening and perceptive and adjustable and yeah, again, go to try to even improve further. And I think you should never really stop developing. I think that's all learning. That's just two things that if you do, I don't think you should be in a job anymore because if you want to be stagnant and stop developing. And again, to me, you asked me before, what was the attraction to take this position, to take this leadership? It was the the kind of really the desire to develop further and to learn how you would lead a team. I mean, there's about 2000 maybe scientists and researchers at HHS that are aligned with HHS research. So it's a big team and very different complexities and very different issues and very different questions and concerns and successes. But to me, it was really the question is uh, of the desire to learn more, to grow more as, as a leader. And 
I'm hoping that I continue to do so because again, I, I see myself as having still some time left in my workforce and I still enjoy what I'm doing. And so I, I hope I will continue to work on myself as a leader and as a, as, uh, as a person and that people will appreciate that as well. That's great. Thank you for sharing. And, you know, this question just came to my mind right now is in addition to all your professional responsibilities and your continued leadership and um, research, are there other areas in your personal and family life that you're exploring further? Any hobbies, new hobbies that you're taking up or you want to take up in this move to Hamilton? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, right now, my hobby is actually listening to audibles and audiobooks uh, oh. because you're two hours in the car. So if you have a day of 10 hours, 12 hours, whatever work day, and then you commute for two. So there's not yes. a lot of space for hobby. But and I, I've given up a little bit. So I, I do what I do enjoy is actually sit on the bike and go bike. Um, so that will be perfect here. Um, I do enjoy reading books and we just came back from vacation. I think I read like four or five books just simply because I had the time and I didn't want to work and I yes. turned off my phone and I was just like, I really don't want to know what's happening at home. So I really don't yeah. want to turn off my phone. So I had time to read and yeah, but uh, I think to the, to explore the nature around Hamilton will be, uh, will be one of the aspects and, uh, you go out there, look at the falls, look at the, the tracks and trails, what you just described to, to sit on a bike and, to know to be exposed in the community is definitely the goal uh, coming. But one thing, I'm not very talented in golf, so golf will not be on my <laughs> That's right. So um, this brings our conversation full circle, actually, and talking about exploring the, the trails around here and maybe also being able to appreciate the waterfront a little bit um, and yep. as your family makes the move here. Thank you very much for being here. And it was really great to talk with you. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's an honor and a privilege. So anyway, thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's macpfd.ca. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.